love smelling it. You can smell the coriander and the... Mm, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Really? I think it smells like stink bug. Stink bug? Yeah. Coriander? coriander? You're yeah. not a coriander eater. No, I love coriander. Oh, you I do? When it goes to seed, it, it just smells... It smells different. Like stink bug, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what stink bug smells like, so maybe that I'm lucky there. <laughs> really? Yeah. They're the coriander of the insect world. <laughs> You are listening to an Environment for Change, an eight-part series looking at some of the many people in the Mount Alexander Shire who are working to combat climate change and promote sustainable living. These are local people who are working towards changing our habits so we can all move forward into a vibrant, healthy and sustainable future. In this series, we'll hear from local farmers, Boomerang Bags, Repair Cafe, local environment groups, activists and concerned citizens. In the last episode of An Environment for Change, I spoke with Katie and Ant at the Mount Alexander Fruit Gardens, an organic orchard in Harcourt. This episode, I'm talking to the gung-ho growers, Sass and Mel. They're organic veggie farmers who have been subletting some land at the orchard for several years now, and they're part of the exciting new cooperative of farmers who are operating from that place. I went out to the farm, or as they call it, the patch, and had a chat to them about what it is to grow organic vegetables in central Victoria. First up, I had a chat with Mel, who was out on the patch uh, with some volunteers. They often have volunteers helping them out there. And uh, they were basically just weeding and clearing some of the rows so that they could replant the next crop. Harcourt's got really different soil to Castlemaine, doesn't it? Yeah, it actually has soil. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But you've also had to do a lot to build it up, haven't you, to make it? Yeah. Yep. So um, Mount Alexander is an old, it's got lots of granite, so it's granitic. This soil is granitic, so it looks a bit sandy. Um, and because of the granite is very old, so it doesn't have, it's got some structure, but it doesn't have nutrients or minerals because it's so old, it's just had nothing. And also this was a commercial orchard where we're growing this patch is, not up the top, but this one is. Um, and so it had different um, systems of farming I guess that we don't use any chemicals and machines really so we don't compact the soil a lot of it's about compacting not compacting the soil building up the nutrients and the microbiology and keeping the moisture in that's what we're trying to do yeah Central Victoria is a pretty harsh place to try and grow stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's really extreme. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've grown stuff up north, haven't you, where it's much easier? Well, where I grew was similar to here, actually. Uh, okay. It was Stanthorpe, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I have lived in Sydney and you plant something and it grows. <laughs> and you can plant it all year and it will grow. <laughs> and you kind of don't even have to water it. No, <laughs> yeah, it seems weird. <laughs> And generally, it's kind of what we were saying to Marty the other week. It's kind of interesting. We're still learning this climate and, you know, the seasons are different every year as the climate gets more intense. Yeah. <laughs> For want of a better word. Um, With climate change. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. And um, the things, the self-seeded things that survive and then just come up in the paths and stuff like that, yeah. they actually tell you, they're like, oh, 
that now is the perfect time. Yeah. You know, whereas we might have thought, oh, a month later or a month earlier. Interesting. Like, no, now. So it's so. quite, quite cool. And we save our own seeds too. So. Yeah. Cool. What's your favourite time of year and your favourite jobs? Me? Yeah. In the garden? Yeah. Oh. Wow. Um, I actually quite enjoy pulling things out and planting things because it feels like cycles. You know, you're kind of saying goodbye to something and then planting, start creating something new. And it kind of means that it, there's life there. I think my favourite season is probably now. Oh no, I like all of them. <laughs> I curse them at the time. <laughs> What's your favourite part about this season? That we get time to do this. We get time to um, pull things out and plant new things ready for autumn and winter. Because of our climate and the season, the extreme climates, we've got very short windows to do that because we need to plant stuff while the soil's still warm so they can grow and then sustain themselves over winter. Whereas if we get them in later, they just will sit there all winter and then spring will come and they'll go, go to seed. Yeah, and we won't get anything off them. So I enjoy the early mornings coming and having dawn, yeah, and then being able to create the things. Then I went and chatted to Sass, who was up by the hothouse, putting seeds into multitudes of tiny containers so that they could have seedlings to plant in a little while. Spring's exciting because it's when you're breaking out of winter and things start to grow again and all the flowers start to blossom and all the blossoms in the orchard around us are flowering and it's just a really alive time and then autumn's really nice because it's like the end of exhausting hot dry summer and the weather suddenly changes and there's moisture in the air again and suddenly there's green and things start to grow again yeah and it's just that exciting change over time both spring and autumn are change over times when you're ripping stuff out and putting the next round of crops in and I guess it's they're both really hopeful times <laughs> as opposed to the end of summer when you're just broken and <laughs> are you is summer rough summer summer's full on yeah they're big days and it's just the the physicality of of harvesting um so many things is really um like that it just takes the time it takes and so they're they're big days and in summer, because you've got so many fruiting things, um, you just have to harvest them. It's not like salad or lettuce or silver beet that you can let go another week. It's when the tomatoes are ready, they're ready, and you, you've got to pick them or they rot. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy the hothouse. Really enjoy raising up the babies and, uh, yeah, the excitement of choosing what varieties. I call seed catalogues my pawn. I like looking at seed pawn. <laughs> and choosing what's, what seeds I'm going to plant that season and what varieties of things and the different colours that they'll be and all of that. Um, yeah, and it's pretty exciting watching them grow up from seed and then plant them out. And what's your least favourite job? Hmm. Cleaning the shed. Cleaning yeah. the packing shed. <laughs> <laughs> and admin finance like invoicing and all that sort of stuff. Pretty boring. <laughs> you guys have had some beautiful help from the community along the way with various things. Yeah. How important has that been? Um, hugely important. I mean, we probably wouldn't exist if we didn't have the support of our community because I guess what we grow 
is is a special thing and it's got to be understood to be appreciated and I think we're in a really supportive community that gets why local organic food's really important. So yeah we've had a lot of support from all realms from the people that buy our produce to friends and family and just random people that come out and help and we ran a crowdfunding campaign a couple of years ago to upscale the size of our production and that was really awesome. I've got heaps of support from people all over Australia and yeah, it meant that we could uh, buy lots of tools and things that we needed. We needed desperately needed a bigger hothouse so we were able to get that and double the size of our production area. So that was Sass talking about how important the community has been to their venture. And part of that is that they do events for the people who have been supporting them over the year to raise awareness and bring people onto the land so that they can show people what they're doing. They had an open day and they did a little tour of the patch and spoke to people about what they're doing and how they're growing and why it's important. And they also had food and produce available for people to buy and it was a really lovely day. And while I was there, I caught a few of the people who'd come along to see what was going on and asked them what they thought about what Sass and Mel are doing with the gung-ho growers. It's such a beautiful setting and I'm really surprised how extensive the garden beds are. I didn't realise that it was quite this advanced. It's just beautiful and everything is just looking so incredibly vigorous and lush and verdant and you know you can hardly stop yourself from snatching a bit from the garden as you go past to eat it's so enticing I think it's fantastic I think it's probably the future as well as we uh, advance into the the new world of global weirding Um, instead of global warming I I think it's going to be the way to go like people banding together and and developing you know new ways of farming I just think it's the best I think these guys are paving the way yeah so well because it's little farms and you know they're working from their heart yeah really local because we eat this stuff in the local cafes and it's so great when I'm eating it in the cafe I'm like oh I know exactly where because I've been out drawing out here I know exactly where these plants are coming from and who's like putting their hands in the earth to you know make it happen I'm loving the variety of what they're building up and how they can crop they've built the crops and seeded and planted so they're getting produce all through the year beautifully managed and it's great to have sort of like I suppose it's shared farm back again have a bit the infrastructure's here so someone that wants to build up doesn't need to invest you know the two hundred thousand dollars to get the water yeah the land itself so it really helps so people can get their produce up and sell quickly you don't need much of a uh, an acreage or an area to produce amount of food which can lower your impact on what you need brought in from elsewhere. Yeah, making enough space to make some produce means you don't have to go to the supermarket or the local veggie which has to get their stuff in from New South Wales or Gippsland or something. Yeah, cuts down on all the aspects that require something to get to your plate. So yes, you know, as we know, the supermarkets usually have a, a very limited understanding of what will be sold en masse. So little enterprises like this can reintroduce products that have left the palate, potentially stimulate people to eat new kind of foods and new varieties of those foods that we are already partaking. 
It's awesome. It's really inspiring. I have come here as a, um, a friend of Melon Sasser's just to check it out and I'm really impressed with what they've done in, the, in a really short time. I'm feeling like... Yeah, I want to just go home and get into my garden and it's just great to see so much food yeah. coming out of a relatively small space and in such a beautiful setting. And it's just great to know that a lot of this produce is going towards local businesses and, yeah, that's sustainable in my eyes. I mean, I think everybody should be able to grow their own food and pick food and take it straight to their kitchen or, you know, close the loop of transportation and food miles and, you know, really create a more localised economy. I think that's really important for for our future, for our community, for the bigger society and, and also if to like cultivate connection to where our food is coming from. I think that's a really important aspect that humans have in many cases lost touch with you know we need to just know where it comes from and therefore be connected to it be connected to the earth and our re- yeah producers and yeah the resources and, and the process behind it yeah you're listening to main fm 94.9 my name's Ali and this is an Environment for Change and this week I'm talking to Sass and Mel who are the gung-ho growers. They are organic vegetable growers in Harcourt. I went out to Mel's house to have a bit of a chat about what made them go down this path, what made them want to do this with their lives and also um, what some of their influences have been over time. If you hear some dog noises, that is because Mel's dog Scally was actually very ill at the time and we were trying to manage her (laughs) and do the interview at the same time. Poor old Scally had chased a roo too many and the roo had turned around and kicked her and created quite a serious injury for poor Scal. So she was on some pain medications and she had one of those big collars on and um, we were doing our best to help Scally be comfortable but also have our chat about the gung-ho growers. So that's what you might hear in the background here. I grew up in the bush so I always had a lot of the, uh, natural environment around me. I had the Yarra River in my backyard and surrounded by state forests so I spent a lot of time as a kid um, hanging out in the bush and from that developed a really strong connection to nature and motivation to want to I guess inspire connection in other people in the hope that through connecting to nature people would be inspired to want to protect nature as well so that came really early on for me and so when I came to study at uni I studied environmental education as a means for learning how to help facilitate those connections so taking people out into the bush hiking or rock climbing or or paddling as a tool through which to connect to the environment and then hoping that people would then go home and feel inspired to do something about different environmental crises in the on the planet but I kind of quickly realized that that's a really specific experience of nature and that taking people away from their home environment and you know, relying on all these, all this gear, all these packs and stoves and things like that and getting in a bus and driving for four hours in and of itself isn't very sustainable, <laughs> even if it is facilitating those uh, connections. So I started exploring different ways of facilitating people connecting to nature in their own environment, in our own backyards. And yeah, did different things to do with that environmental education, teaching kids how to grow food and 
very quickly came to realise that food is one of our most unsustainable habits, um, but it's also one of the places where most people can make change to better look after the planet. So I focus my energy a lot more on learning, skilling myself up to be able to grow food, but also to be able to teach other people how to grow food. What did that look like? You worked with the Growing Abundance program for a long time and you're also a Stephanie Alexander kitchen gardener. Yeah. yeah, so I worked for a few years in a primary school teaching kids how to grow food and that was really amazing because it's something that kids just connect to naturally and they're so curious and they're so observant that it's just something that they're really inspired to do and it's not in a classroom so it's a whole other kind of level of learning and it's something every kid can do so that's something that's really inspiring about all those kitchen garden programs is that even the kids that don't do well in the classroom do really well in the garden and you know learn learn they learn to look differently at the things around them and to connect differently with the plants and the animals and the insects and to observe them and appreciate them. Um, So I worked with Growing Abundance for five years and helped start up the harvest program and that was about looking at the resources that are already in the community and better looking after those resources, fruit trees, vegetables, wild trees on the side of the road and and looking at how to look after those things and then share the abundance that comes from them within the community so nothing goes to waste, which was a really amazing project and it's still going and it does great things in the community. But over the course of five years and lots of conversations with people about local food and local food systems and what a strong local food system looks like sort of came to realize that there's not anybody growing food in our local community or very few people growing food at a bigger than um, backyard scale so that's when I decided to um, rather than tell other people that they should be doing it I should just give it a go myself. We live in a it's traditionally an orcharding region apple pear and stone fruit orcharding area but over the last sort of 20 or 30 years a lot of orchards have shut down a lot of the old family farms have shut down and the few that remain are the large-scale agricultural farms that sell either offshore or into very large multinational companies and uh, so that produce doesn't go into our local market there's only one organic orchard growing locally that supplies the local market and yeah, every, other than that, if you go to the supermarket in Castlemaine, most of it's come from Melbourne, which is <laughs> the food's then gone to, from somewhere else to Melbourne, from Melbourne to Castlemaine. So it's very hard to actually access local food. Like it sounds like you connected to this idea of nature quite young and nature being worth protecting mm. and also nature being at risk. Do you have a sense of when you developed that idea that the environment is at risk from humanity and, and that it needs protecting? Hmm. Uh, yes. Captain Planet. <laughs> really? Pollution down to zero. Here's a power's magnifying and he's fighting on the planet side. <laughs> the power is yours. Yeah, I think Captain Planet was the first thing that kind of opened my mind to things beyond my own little world. Like when I was in prep, we had a little pine forest at the school that got chopped down. And I remember that being quite traumatic because that's where we always went and played. But I don't think I was really old enough to connect that with any bigger picture. But yeah, I think Captain Planet got me, (laughs) got me feeling like I could do something and 
yeah, being more aware of what the bigger issues were. That's great. <laughs> he's he he's a he earth, wind, fire, water. Oh, Our powers combined. Yeah. <laughs> we are Captain Planet. Yeah. And that's, that was like the game I used to play with my friends where we were all the different things and we had our little rings and we were Captain oh. Planet. <laughs> Did you have a favourite aspect of Captain Planet? Yeah, I always wanted to be Earth because he was a cool African dude and heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matisse, he was from South, South America. <laughs> and he was kind of the little guy that everyone would tease. Yeah, a little weedy one. Yeah. Oh. That's actually quite nice to hear about Captain Planet because I'm like, as a maybe storyteller slash creative, it's mm. like you kind of wonder what influence you've got, if any. And you, like, I know personally that people who write novels and stuff have influenced me really deeply. Yeah. But as a writer, you go, oh, no one's ever going to read this. What's it for? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of cool to hear that. Yeah, it really did. I remember there was one episode that was about air pollution or something and they were putting socks over car exhaust or, oh. or bananas in car exhaust or something. Anyway, I did it to my dad's car. He wasn't very happy. Oh. You did it. What did you do? A I banana I or a, a sock? I put the sock over there with an elastic band over there. <laughs> and the car caught on fire or what? No, I don't think he noticed before we drove off. <laughs> Why is my sock hanging up the exhaust pipe? <laughs> so maybe it's not always a good influence. Yeah. <laughs> Mum always had a veggie garden and we always tried, she always grew lots of food in the veggie garden and loved cooking. I would learn about plants and nature in that kind of way, but also pretty much every weekend we'd go to the bush. So I grew up in Canberra and before it burnt down, Tidbinbilla National Park was really beautiful. And so we'd just go there and have bushfires. Uh, bush <laughs> um, <laughs> campfires. Campfires, yes, yeah, like bonfire, no. Um, yeah, and just that was a really, uh, that for me, that was a beautiful time because I just would remember all these kids and families and we'd just kind of hang out really and eat food and, yeah, we'd just always have nature experiences. Mm. Was there a moment when you realised that, like, climate change or the environment was at risk and that you wanted to do something about it or is that mm. is that part of your reason for farming? Um, yes, definitely. So I guess in... Well, I guess so growing up I'd always have had an appreciation and always that was always my... Um, place it was going to the bush or um, being in some trees or you know something like that is always a nourishing thing that um, makes me feel whole again so coming from that kind of a place I went to uni and then met uh, made some friends and then one of her friends boyfriends or guy that she liked or something anyway we um we went over to his place and then at the end he was laughing himself off and he's like ha so it's all just come out of the bin (laughs) and um it was all about dumpster diving so I think that was probably my first initiation into more action environmental action and activism per se you know, they, they became lots of my friends and, you know, I consciously made decisions about catching public transport. I didn't catch planes for a really long time, trying to buy your food local. So I started buying veggie boxes, uh, local veggie, or what they said were local veggie boxes. Um, yeah, so I reckon that was, that was the beginning. And I guess that just made sense to me, that way of life. You know, you recycle, but you also reuse. So always buy secondhand clothes. You're always careful with water. 
just really simple things. Even uh, I think a favorite one favorite thing was we were we made a band called the Riff Raff Radical Marching Band because we were like, <laughs> well, my friend was like, oh, I hate going to all these hippie protests with bongo drums, <laughs> and so, so she she wanted to form a brass band that would be at protests, you know, to kind of. So it was kind of I was involved with lots of people who were really fun and different like that which I really appreciated and they they're still activists to this day it's awesome I admire them a lot but that's not my I'm not in I can't do that (laughs) for my life so I think going along from that I was working in uh, western inner west Sydney and I was doing social work stuff and I guess I was just becoming more and more aware through documentaries and articles and stuff of the actual food system itself and just how wrong it seemed to be it's like well this carrot that I'm buying has traveled this far to you know get to me and that's a ridiculous environmental like this is ridiculous and that kind of led me then on to thinking further well I have some gardening skills kind of I can't really grow strawberries I can kind of grow um basil uh you know so I'd, I'd always try and grow little things but then realizing I actually don't have the skills to grow my own food which is an essential survival skill <laughs> one would say I started thinking about that and that really scared me and then I kind of realized that the majority of us don't know how to grow our own food so then who are we relying on for our food and we're relying on big systems and big chains and just the stuff that I didn't agree with and that obviously is ruining the world and not good for lots of different people in that system so yeah so the other thing was kind of seeing in that system that the really I don't know kind of how to describe it but good I'm saying with inverted commas good food was really seemed really expensive so seeing how people who I was working with as doing youth social work stuff couldn't that one they didn't have the skill to grow their own food and two it's the food that's healthy for them and local to them isn't accessible because it's too expensive so I I guess that was my starting journey into farming was wanting to learn the skills of how to grow properly for yourself so then I could teach other people um, who were probably in the same situation as me, you know, didn't have heaps of money and didn't necessarily have land or, you know, any of that, but it's actually just looking after yourself. Yeah. On a, you know, on a big level. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do to learn how to grow food? I dug up the backyard of my new townhouse <laughs> and planted some garden beds. That was the turning point, I guess, because I realised that I didn't really know how to grow productively. So I didn't know how to grow for more... I didn't really know how to grow for myself and I didn't really know how to grow for more people. So my vision was to work on a farm, working with other you know, young people, teaching them skills of how to grow food, I guess. Oh. Yeah. And you actually have realised that now. Somewhat, yeah, we're getting there. It's it's amazing, yeah. <laughs> and how long did you spend? Because you went from farm to farm for a bit, learning from other people. Mm. How long did you spend doing all that stuff? Mm, almost a year, so not very long at all. My aim was to do a different farm for each season, but I I only did three seasons. And then when you came to Castlemaine, you set up one patch by yourself on mm. someone else's land. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that. I wanted to. Yeah, I just wanted to start growing productively. So someone gave me, we worked out an agreement and I grew some veggies in their backyard. Yeah, yeah. so like 12 or 15 mm. square metres, something like that. Little. <laughs> yeah. 
And how did that go? Um, well, I think I learnt a lot about myself and working with other people on their land and also about my time management because I don't think it, my time management wasn't as good because I was just riding my bike everywhere. But also that people in this community were really happy to start buying from people who were genuinely local. Like I, I started selling lettuce and I sold garlic and I sold silverbeet and kale and, you know, everything that I grew I could sell. Who to? To the good table. So Alexander Perry. Yeah. Local restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So how did you two get together and what made you decide to move and try somewhere else and join forces? (laughs) It's a funny story. (laughs) You tell. I feel like you tell it better. No, you tell it. Why don't Um. you both tell it? You start. Um. (laughs) I moved into a house that was um, a house sit and because it was rent free and a beautiful house and Sass lived and it was kind of a bit of a, um, well it was an intentional community and so Sass also lived and her partner also lived in that community. Yeah and at the time I was working with Growing Abundance but more and more in my brain going I need to try to grow food I, I want to grow food. I think that's my next my next step in this sustainability local food journey is to see if I can actually grow food to feed a community rather than just myself because at where where I was living I was growing food to feed the neighbors but yeah I wanted to see what what that would look like on a bigger scale. So when I went, met Mel and she had the same vision it was just like great let's find land. <laughs> and how did you find land? We spent probably 12 months at least Mm. asking around and going and checking out different patches of land. And, I mean, the great thing about about the local community is that people really want um, to support local food and and new farmers and that kind of thing. But, unfortunately, we also have a severe lack of soil (laughs) and water and infrastructure to do that. So we spent a lot of time looking at different patches of land that were very generously offered to us to use but they're all very inappropriate in terms of they they didn't have soil didn't have access to water didn't have either (laughs) yeah Um, so so for people who don't live in central victoria (laughs) can you explain what that means in terms of lack of soil because there's obviously ground beneath your feet yeah (laughs) yeah that's it that's it yeah (laughs) castlemaine was is historically a gold mining area so it basically means that and there's been a couple of gold rushes in the in the region over time so it means that the ground has basically been turned inside out multiple times in the last 200 years and all topsoil that ever existed has been washed away and all that's left is the seams of rock or clay so we joke that the castlemaine shovel is a crowbar because that's what we use in Castlemaine to dig a hole is a crowbar. (laughs) How did you guys find the perfect place? Mm. How did that come about? Part of your what I was asking about your first attempt Mel was that it wasn't right for a couple of reasons and one of them was the impermanence of it and that your decision to go with Katie and Hugh was because there was an agreement that was a bit more set in stone. Can you explain that? I guess why I'm asking is that it's part of there's sort of key points in there about how other people can what you need to think about to make things like this actually work yeah so that you guys have security and you know because you don't want to invest in soil Mm. if you can't keep the soil because you have to move on 
Yeah, well, and as as you just heard from SAS, it's a, it's a lot of investment of time, money and labour. What does it take? Blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> <laughs> it takes compost, poo and, and straw. <laughs> and time. Yeah. And water. <laughs> yeah. And just everything because it just has nothing. Yeah. And, I mean, so we, when we're talking about Castlemaine, most of the places that we looked were in Castlemaine, but where we've ended up growing is in Harcourt. So Harcourt actually has some soil. And I, when we first started digging it, we were like, oh, my God, there's soil. And, you know, it, it took us, of course, we had did soil tests and everything, and we realised, oh, it still doesn't have anything in it. <laughs> but it's like, at least there's soil and we can dig. Yeah. So, so nothing in it means not the right nutrients. Just not no any nutrients. Nothing. <laughs> 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 or minerals. It's very old. It's granitic soil, which means it's old and it's taken a long time to break down, which means it's just, yeah, it's washed out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think SAS asked them, just floated it with them at the beginning when we we'd decided that we wanted to grow together and they'd said no because they had a um, they'd been in 13 years of drought so the idea of sharing water sharing land you know just seemed ridiculous when they're struggling enough as it is and then a year later they saw that we were still looking (laughs) and I think that to them showed that we were genuinely keen it wasn't a flash idea something that would just pass so they then approached us so then the way that it worked was we both, they wanted, they're very good business people and they're also very straight down the line and up front. So you're not kind of dealing with anything that you don't really know about. And both, we both wanted it to work for both sides and to be really fair and something that I think knowing now, four years down the track, it's like they, they really want us to work. They really wanted us to work. So they were trying to give us a fair we still have to pay our way but a fair thing that meant that we could access land so that we could farm because in the bigger scheme of things that's something that needs to happen more with farmers who don't can't have access to land so what does fair mean what sort of security do you have did you have a contract in place yeah so we we took a lease template from another farmer in new south wales that also has other young farmers leasing land off them so we took his template lease and we just sort of adapted it to our situation to include access to water and uh, specific patches of land and the monetary value of that over 12 months. I think we originally started with a three-year lease term so it's like a very formal on paper legal agreement so we have security and they have security too. Mm. How did you start? What did you do? (laughs) (laughs) We we started with garlic. Uh, Lease got finalised in April and that's when we plant garlic so the first four beds we dug were for garlic so now we count our years on the farm in terms of our garlic crops. Because <laughs> we, we still do garlic with biodynamic planting which is planting by the moon. We try and do lots of other things but garlic we always do and there was a specific day that was the best day for garlic so we're like yes we're going to plant it that day but we were waiting on our soil tests to come back because also around this area because of gold mining but also the orchard hasn't always been organic it previously wasn't organic and where we were growing hadn't been an orchard for a very long time and it was just paddock so we needed to know that the levels of anything in it were okay and we could still grow so we were like we believe that the soil that it'll be okay so we hired sass hired the rotary hoe and we got the soil test test back in the same day so we rotary hoed 
a, an eighth of an acre and then we dug four beds and then we planted the garlic all in one day. <laughs> that was our first, that was how we started. <laughs> much the pace we've kept. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Main FM 94.9. My name's Ali and this is an Environment for Change and this week I'm talking to Sass and Mel who are the gung-ho growers. And who have you been selling to? Um, we sell to local restaurants and cafes and we sell to some local catering people every now and then and boxes we do veggie boxes and so slowly we're kind of building up how many we do and for how long we do them. Uh, I think this summer we did, what, four or five months? Yeah. Um, 30 boxes a week. Yeah. Yeah. So that was our formal. We kind of informally do, I mean, we pick every week of the year and we informally do boxes, but, oh, and sometimes markets as well. Yeah. Like how, it's been for five years, did you say? We've just gone three. We're in our fourth year. We're in our fourth crop of garlic. (laughs) We could never go, are we three, four or five? What are we? We don't know. (laughs) Definitely on our fourth crop of garlic. So we're going into our fourth year. Yeah. What's in the future? Where are you guys headed? Are you feeling good about where you're at now? One of the, yeah, one of the really exciting things that's kind of emerged over the last couple of years since we started farming there with Katie and Hugh is that they I guess started to see how important our relationship was and um, how many other young farmers there are out there that uh, had the same have the same issues in terms of land access to get started and part of their I guess retirement plan in a way is in keeping the farm still productive but not them having to do all the work is to invite other young farmers onto the land to start their enterprises so that's one of the really exciting things coming up in the future is we're setting up a co-op so a legal structure that we all come under as part of a collaborative farming model which is kind of pushing a few boundaries in terms of legal structures and and certification bodies and yeah lobbying and that kind of thing that that the model that we're setting up doesn't actually exist in Australia if the world and that's pretty exciting thing to be a part of so who else is joining in um so Katie and Hugh they're passing the orchard on to a guy called Ant so that's Ant will be part of the cooperative um and Tess she's going to be doing what is it Sellers Sellers Farmhouse Creamery She's already on site and she's starting up a micro dairy. So that's really lovely. And then Sass and Katie do, and Katie's dad, Merv, they'll do a heritage fruit tree nursery. So they'll grow fruit trees from seeds and grafting things and sell them. We're looking for a bee person and a chook person. Yeah. And yeah, there's opportunities there for other people to start enterprises as well, maybe on site compost making. Um, yeah, lots of things that all interact with each other but are their own distinct businesses. Do you think it relies on you guys all being particularly good-willed and it may not be? Um, no, good-willed? Why? No, we're grumpy. We're grumpy farmers. <laughs> <laughs> it's great when we, when we have our cooperative meetings. We're like, no, we're actually, we want to be primary producers. We don't want to do um, tours all the time because what we actually want to do is we want to do our work, which is to farm. How do you see... The future of farming in Australia, because um, it, it seems like this is almost going back to an old school kind of village system 
and where everyone's businesses complement each other and you all have, you know, something to offer to the community that isn't necessarily competing with the next person as opposed to what the last 100 years has been large-scale farming and um, monoculture crops and, and all that sort of stuff. So is that what you see the solution to food agriculture if everyone could is this a model that could move elsewhere or do you think it's a bit unique small scale diverse agriculture is where we need to go Uh, but I think at the scale that that's happening at the moment we can't feed our nation and our communities so I think we need to be encouraging more of it and I think access to land is one of the big barriers for people who want to farm but don't have the capital to buy you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollar property and then all the infrastructure that goes with starting a farm. So I think the model that we have where Katie and Hugh, who own the land, are open to leasing the land at, you know, generous rates that also (laughs) cover their costs. I think that's a really important model to be encouraged because it's not like we don't have the land or the water or the soil to grow enough food. It's just that we're stuck in a bit of a mindset of the way that it should be done, which Mm. is no longer relevant or no longer relevant on on a mass scale. But I think at the same time, I don't know very much about it, but there's a lot of new technologies coming out for growing food in a really sustainable manner, but on a larger scale that helps to mitigate the vagaries of a changing climate which is one of the real struggles we have is that growing food in the ground outside is a very variable thing as the climate changes more and more like every season is completely different we've got no norms anymore Mm. Uh, so I think there's probably also a role for some sort of technological advances in sustainable agriculture. I think I think I, w- I won't speak for SAS, but I'll, th- I'll speak for myself. In terms of the educational, uh, educational, environmental context, I believe quite strongly that there need to be heaps more of small-scale farmers because when the petrol runs out, when it's too expensive, uh, the trucks that carry our food everywhere won't be able to do it. And so they might build trains and then that will probably break down too. Or, you know, I just think our food system as it currently stands environmentally is bound to crash. And therefore, we need to be able to look after ourselves and we can't rely on the people to grow our, you know, Carrots. Carrots. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Three states away. Um, And I'll buy them because they're the cheapest carrots that I can get kind of thing. So I think that, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think that it's really important. And I think there is a small scale movement in Australia. There's a small scale movement of farming all over the world. And, you know, it's exciting, but it might not happen in our lifetime. But I think our dream is that it becomes a viable business for us and it becomes a working example of a model that's both serves our community with food and serves us with our livelihoods and also is an educational place where we can continue those skills to keep going outwards because 
you know, that's essential. <laughs> and, you know, not everyone needs to be able to grow the food like we do. We need people to be able to save seeds. We need people to be able to grow beautiful seedlings. We need people to, you know, it's kind of, it's not, not everyone has to do the same thing, which is what I love about the cooperative, the co yeah, the co-op at Harcourt is that we're all doing different things, but we do all complement each other. And once or twice a week, we'll gather together over a shared meal and we're all the same, but not. And that's, it's really simple and it's really beautiful. Mm. And how far off are you guys from actually being financially sustainable for yourselves? <laughs> We're probably not like your typical business um, people. <laughs> we both work other jobs to fund our life and then we farm because we're passionate about it and the hope is that one day farming will be our livelihood. We, we started with $200 each to put into gung-ho. So considering that... <laughs> We pay ourselves as a very small wage each week, but that's been building itself up ever since we've started and I think we're getting better and better. And part of it for us is now that we've stopped expanding, we want to get more efficient um, so we spend our time better so therefore we're actually producing off our whole land because currently because we're not able to efficiently manage it, we're not, we're not fully producing, which means that I think we don't have a full idea of what we can get from it. And you guys have volunteers who come and help out on the patch. What do you think they get out of being there? Food. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is a joke, but that's actually true. They do get food. (laughs) I think um, lots of things. And I think, I mean, we obviously get lots of things out of having volunteers out there with us too. But I think a a lot of the people that are motivated to come out and volunteer do so because they want to learn, which is really inspiring for us because we love being asked questions that are thoughtful and, you know, that are motivated from the person wanting to learn how to grow their own food. And that's part of the dream is to share those skills and and, um, help to nurture other people to start similar businesses because there's lots of people that are thinking about it. And a lot of the volunteers that have kind of approached us have been people that have that dream that one day they might grow food productively, either either to feed themselves or as a business. So I think, yeah, hopefully they get some knowledge and skills out of doing it. And I think just the connection to like connecting mm. to other pe- like-minded people that share similar interests mm. is really lovely. Um, we've met some really beautiful people that have come out and volunteered with us and then become friends. Yeah. And I think uh, it's a very real thing that when that we can forget sometimes, you know, every day because we're like, oh, so many things to do all the time forever. The very simple act of being outside and working in the soil and helping things to grow, helping to create something and then helping to nourish something, that's really good too on a level that you might not even be aware of. Yeah, one of my favourite times lately, we had a few more volunteers come out one day and we were all weeding, we've got a big um, brassica patch and we were all just, and it was a jungle, and we were all just weeding it and just the conversations that were happening and people were just happy and they are just like, can we do this every week? And I'm like, you want to weed every week? Yes, sure. (laughs) But, um, you know, it was because of the connection, like what South was talking about. I don't know, yeah, it's, it's really good. I think people appreciate being able to do that if they don't have that in their everyday. 
You're listening to Main FM 94.9 and this is an environment for change. And I had one last question for Sass and Mel. Looking around Mel's house, I could see beautiful quotes and poems posted up on the walls. And so I asked them who might have influenced them or if they had favourite authors that had inspired them. Mel and I, that was one of the first things we connected over, I think, before we even started talking about farming was Sufi poets. Um, So we share a love of Rumi and Hafiz. So this one's from Rumi. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And I, yeah, I just really like that one, That especially that line, that the beauty you, you love be what you do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And I feel like that's what farming is about is it's you know it's an expression of our love for the planet and the environment and um quite literally we're often kneeling and maybe (laughs) not kissing the ground but (laughs) very close to (laughs) that's great oh that's a beautiful yeah i love it (laughs) it's a bit of a cliche but i was inspired by um the one straw revolution by musunobu fukuoku i think that's how you say his name He's a Japanese farmer who practiced lots of natural farming techniques and one of the things that he does is broadcast seeds rather than planting seedlings and then taking the, the seedlings and planting them out into the, into the patch. He tries to mimic more natural ways that nature manages itself. And so he scatters them rather than... Yeah, he just throws the seeds out and whatever comes up, comes up and they're the strongest ones. That's something I quite like to do. Sass <laughs> loves to do it. You'll see her with sunflowers like whacking the ground or um, or, or just kind of throwing seeds. She'll just be w- walking, half skipping around. It's great. <laughs> oh, cool. Seed fairy. <laughs> yeah, and then like a month later I'll be like, why is there mustard growing over there? Oh, that's right. So I've got two. This is one. So um, I love Wendell Berry <laughs> and he's a North American, I don't know how, he's kind of old now, but he's a farmer and he's also a poet and kind of an activist and I love him. So this is a quote from him that says, the soil is the great connector of lives, the source and destination of all. It is the healer and restorer and resurrector by which disease passes into health, age into youth, death into life. Without proper care for it, we can have no community because without proper care for it, we can have no life. So this is another book by Wendell Berry. <laughs> it's called The Clearing. My friend bought it for me from a second-hand bookshop when she was in Portland, of course. How old is it? Oh, 1934. Wow. So this is... I don't think this copy is necessarily no. from there, but... Oh, that's when he was... Yeah, that's when he first wrote, oh. wrote them. Yeah. So it's called A Work Song. A Vision. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow-growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, if we will make our seasons welcome here, asking not too much of heaven or earth, then a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live here, their houses strongly placed upon the valley sides, fields and gardens rich in the windows. The rivers will run clear as we will never know it, and over it, birdsong like a canopy. On the levels of the hills will be green meadows, stock bells in noon shade. 
On the steeps where greed and ignorance cut down the old forest, an old forest will stand, its rich leaf fall drifting on its roots. The veins of forgotten springs will have opened, families will be singing in the fields. In their voices they will hear a music risen out of the ground. They will take nothing from the ground, they will not return, whatever the grief at parting. Memory, native to this valley, will spread over it like a grove, and memory will grow into legend, legend into song, song into sacrament. The abundance of this place, the songs of its people and its birds, will be health and wisdom and indwelling light. This is no paradisal dream, it's hardship in its possibility. Number three is passion. Beautiful. <gasps> that one and that the, the next one. one. Yeah. Mm. That that one and the, this yeah, next yeah. one is like what kind of got me. Yeah. yeah cool. So passion. Passion has brought me to this clearing of the ground, an ancient passion singing in my veins, beneath speech, unheard many years, yet leading me through cities, streets and roads, gatherings, voices, speech, and again beyond speech, beyond the words of books. To stand in this hillside field in October wind, critical and solitary, like a horse dumbly approving of the grass, the world as clear as light, as dark as dark. Can it lead me away from books? Is it leading me away? What will I say to my fellow poets whose poems I do not read while this passion keeps me in the open? What is this silence coming over me? I am curious and afraid one day my poems may pass through my mind unwritten, like the freshenings of a stream in the hills, holding the light only while they pass, shaping only what they pass through, source and destination the same. I am afraid, some days, that only vanity keeps me at my words. Some days I wait here empty as a tree whose birds and leaves have gone, and I know my words have gone in search of things. They are hunting the song that will celebrate the absence of what does not belong. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's the poet's verse. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Mm. Wow. Um, so this is number five, a beginning. October's completing light falls on the unfinished patterns of my year. The sun is yellow in a smudge of public lies we no longer try to believe. Speech finally drives us to silence. Power has weakened us. Comfort wakens us in fear. We are a people who must decline or perish. I have let my mind at last bend down where human vision begins its rise in the dark of seeds, wombs of beasts. It has carried my hands to roots and foundings, to the mute urging that in human care clears the field and turns it green. It reaches the silence at the tongue's root in which speech begins. In early mist, I walk in these reopening fields as in a forefather's dream. In dream and sweat, the fields have seasoning. I work to renew a ruined place, that no life be hostage of my comfort. Let my words then begin in labour. Let me sing a work song and an earth song. Let the song of light fall upon me as it may. The end of this is not in sight, and I come to the waning of the year weary, the way long. That's beautiful. Mm. I feel like that's really lovely in that he's talking about returning to a ruined land and mm. you know regenerating and going back to old ways and stuff like that mm. and that's really lovely and then uh, yeah so this is the last one uh, and it's called returning to the beloved 
The low song of summer's end, dreaming in the air and the light clear. I drive loads of manure to the field to make pasture for the coming year. There is a kind of labour that is absence in the hurry and fret of growth, the worry of obligation, time and money, the threat of summer storm or drought. And now we make this return, the team and I. In the glimmering atmosphere of song, we come and go again, rebuilding promise in the ground. It will not be long before the cold will drive us in, but this now is where I ought to be and want to be and where I am. Desire and circumstance are one. Like a woman's arms, this work holds me. This has been an Environment for Change on MNFM 94.9. This week, I've been speaking to Mel and Sass from the Gung Ho Growers about producing food on a small scale for a local market and why it's so important to be able to do that in a climate that is changing so dramatically. I won't be on air next week, or if I am, it will be a repeat of this program. <laughs> and I'll be back in two weeks with a fresh episode of Environment for Change. This series has been brought to you care of a council grant from the Mount Alexander Shire Council. That grant only really allowed for eight episodes, and I would love to do a lot more episodes. So if you're enjoying this series and you want to hear me extend it for a year or so and talk to so many other environment groups in the region, including other farmers and people being active in the community, trying to work for change towards a more sustainable future, then jump onto the Pick My Project website and look for Saltgrass, the podcast. I changed the name because I felt like Environment for Change had already been done by me right now, but also it's a name that's been used a few times and I, I felt like Saltgrass was a nice word. It's an actual Australian native plant it can be used to help salinity and erosion and it also brings to mind ideas around salt of the earth people and grassroots movements. So I thought all of those things combined was a nice symbol for a series that would talk to local people about what they're doing for the environment and to create a sustainable future. So jump onto the Pick My Project website. You'll see a lot of other local projects. There's an awful lot of really great projects available for you to cast a vote on. I think you get three votes. So if you register on the website, you can have a look through all the projects that are available in our region. So that's within 50 kilometers of here. And you will get to pick three of them. Please think about voting for Saltgrass, the podcast. Then I'll be able to do a whole year's worth of episodes like this, talking to local people about sustainability. Change.